0: He's the most powerful of all the racists who have been connected to the Trump administration. He's the guy who has the president's ear.
1: And if people are up to no good, they can use that by giving information to our adversaries and become susceptible to being used as a double agent.
2: It was never discussed with me what he did. I just knew he worked for the government. And I think, to my knowledge, that was kind of the extent of what most people knew.
3: Sounds Like Hate is a new podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm Geraldine Moriba.
4: And I'm Jamila Paxima. This first season is about how some people become extremists and how some of them disengage from a life of hate.
3: This is part two of Getting Out. It's about Samantha, a woman who went from campaigning for President Barack Obama to becoming an American white nationalist.
2: It's just really weird. Like, this is the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And despite the guilt and everything, I almost feel like I'm getting away with something.
3: It's about the homegrown web of hate Samantha was entangled in, and white nationalists who have government
2: jobs and political appointments. These groups, this ideology is leading to violent behavior, even outside of the quote-unquote policy changes and humane ethnic cleansing or whatever they call it. It's like a direct correlation, the uprising of violence and the popularity or the rising popularity of this ideology.
3: In 2017, Samantha was the women's leader of Identity Europa, a group of white nationalists who disguised their hate with clean cut appearances and white identity politics. She also was connected to government officials who are secretly extremists, like Matthew Gebert.
1: The cult of Trump is actually very important in terms of he's going against a a power structure that would love to see him dead or in jail.
3: While Gebert was a State Department official, he used a pseudonym to hide the messages of hate he spread on the Internet. In this YouTube video, he's explaining where President Trump fits in a white nationalist agenda.
1: If he's got this cult, uh, then that insulates him from the attacks from the left. Uh, But no, we should not put all our faith in Trump at all. And we need to be organizing for the post-Trump era uh, and not assume that he's going to succeed on any grounds where we would like him to succeed.
3: Gebert's the sort of racist who believes that, quote, we "We need a country founded for white people with a nuclear deterrent. his goal is to create a white ethno-state, and according to Samantha, Gebbert recruited casually
2: at parties he hosted. A lot of parties. There were a lot of gatherings at least once or twice a month. Showing up at these parties means that they're accessible to you. So
3: it makes you feel valued.
2: And it makes you also feel like you, you could be the important. next one. Yeah. Right. And so it incentivizes people to stay and to keep going and to keep wanting to be there.
3: Gabbard's pseudonym is Coach Finstock, taken from the movie Teen Wolf, and his wife, Anna, is called Wolfie James. So
2: what are we looking at here in this video? This is Coach Finstock and Wolfie James's house. Um, I actually don't even remember why I took the video. I just did. I think, honestly, they just, honestly, they have a really nice house. It was never discussed with me what he did. I just knew he worked for the government. Um, And I think, to my knowledge, that was kind of the extent of what most people knew.
4: Hello? Hi, can you hear me?
1: I can hear you fine.
3: That's Amos Hochstein, the former head of President Barack Obama's Special Envoy for International Energy at the State Department. He was Gebert's manager until 2017.
1: He primarily was the desk officer for Pakistan, Afghanistan, and for a while, India on energy. He had full access to classified information and classified computer systems that would give him access to quite a bit of
3: information. So how did it first come to your attention that Gebert is a white supremacist?
1: I think I got a number of text messages from people. It was a total shock.
4: You had no idea. No idea. Geraldine, how did Gebbert pass background security checks and get into the State Department? When anyone is hired, they're
3: required to complete an SF-86. That's a standard background questionnaire. According to Hochstein, the answers are evaluated by subcontractors, often retired police officers. In Gebbert's case, he passed the screening every five years.
1: Look, this is not about Matt Giebert. This is about the fact that someone like Matt Giebert easily gets a security clearance more than once. Uh, has a what is supposed to be a background check and a forgiving attitude towards people with his kinds of views by the people who are conducting the security clearance. I strongly believe that if someone like Matt Giebert was was black or Hispanic or Muslim, this type of behavior would have been discovered and become a big problem. I have seen people get wrapped up and get stuck without a security clearance for much more minor and insignificant issues. And I think that the review falls down and collapses because there's no way that they didn't know that he had these views and that he was doing these things. We are willing to believe that a Muslim could be radicalized and still wear a a suit and look normative. But the imagery of a well-educated boy next door doesn't match with a white supremacist. He's just more conservative.
3: Samantha remembers the gatherings hosted by the Gebberts after President Trump entered
4: office.
2: The Gebberts were like an important behind-the-scenes family. Politicians or other people would go to visit their house. You know, actors in the movement, voices, whatever. They were close enough to D.C. that people would stay with them and then go to whatever they needed to go to. The reason that I knew them was because they had said they wanted to make that area like a mini ethnostate. They wanted as many white people in the movement to move there as possible.
3: That area is Leesburg in northern Virginia, about an hour from
2: Washington, D.C. I had been there several times. When I had first moved up there, I had transferred with a job and I didn't have an apartment. And I stayed with them for a couple weeks. Oh, you lived with them? Briefly, yeah, for a week or two. They just happened to be in a place where people were traveling through and it happened to be at a time when there was a lot of movement within the movement. And I think they just happened to have the resources and ability to facilitate those things. I understand that at his parties, he
3: served cookies in the shape of swastikas. Yeah. And there was no offense at these parties when someone would walk around with a tray of cookies that looked like swastikas, that was totally okay.
2: I think there was this desire to normalize hate. Yes. If the general public wants to call the alt right Nazis, then they're going to take it and run with it, almost as a joke.
3: The words alt right get used a lot. It's a set of far right ideologies with white nationalism at its core.
1: It scares the hell out of me. I don't think there's a rise in white supremacy. I think there's a rise in people who are white supremacists feeling okay to speak out loud.
3: Amos Hogstein, Gebert's former manager, worries enough isn't being done to weed out government staffers who are extremists.
1: Charging him with lying on his security clearance to make an example of how intolerable this is in the federal government uh, would send a message. It would not root out and get all the other white supremacists out of the State Department or the government service, but it would send a chilling message and at least bring some of these people back into their holes.
3: White supremacist organizations have openly said that the only way to gain power is to get into office, to take over intelligence agencies, the CIA, the FBI, and enter every division of government.
1: Which is why... I don't like talking about Matt Gibbert. I like talking about it as a symbol of, is there a review that we are doing? Instead of circling the wagons and trying to protect uh, the system that failed, we should be doing the opposite. Let's go and see, how did we miss this? This is not one person. This is a danger that we have to see, a threat from within. You wrote about how we should be uniting with the white Russian and Nordic people and admiration for essentially for Putin, that's somebody with a security clearance who has sworn to protect and defend the United States. And if they have access to classified information, what does that mean to our government's efforts or for another government to use these people to help them gain more access and information about U.S. operations and U.S. way of thinking inside the government? We have to learn how to find these people so that they don't take senior positions in government.
3: Is there anything that can be done to either de-radicalize somebody like him or disempower people who have these views?
1: Before we get him to change, we have to change. We have to make sure that we are not continuing to empower and give a sense of security and safety to people who join the government with these kinds of views and actions. There hasn't been a single hearing on the Hill where the head of the Diplomatic Security Bureau, the assistant secretary, has called before the Hill and said, explain what happened here.
3: Gebert is still sharing his opinions online. I'm here for white people. Here he is on a podcast responding to a question from a listener who's concerned about marrying a woman who happens to be half Japanese.
0: We do have to draw lines somewhere. You have the ideal, you have the unacceptable, and then there are middle, blurry lines. Every people has to deal with this, who gets citizenship, who's in, who's out, Uh, and 25 Japanese is, to me, very close to that blurry line just being candid. Um,
3: Mike Hayden is a senior investigative reporter with Hate Watch at the Southern Poverty Law Center. He broke this story about Gebert.
0: Gebert is focused on uh, the whole subject of declining white birth rates and white genocide. It's supposed to be like a kind of a family friendly podcast is the way he kind of packages it. But as with all these things, they have difficulty staying on track and um, it veers off into explicit hate and, and sometimes uh, violent fantasies.
4: So how is removing a government employee like Gebert? different than removing a presidential appointee who is a white nationalist. Jamila, it's not easy. When it works, there's a system in place to weed out
3: government employees like Gebert. But presidential appointments are political. These appointees are subject to removal only by the president. Take Stephen Miller. He's a senior advisor to President Trump. Leaked private emails between Miller and a reporter at Breitbart, a right-wing publication, reveal that Miller's opinions blatantly parrot white nationalist propaganda. And in spite of demands for his removal, he's still there.
0: And One of the things that I think that we were able to do with this story is to give people the context to understand the types of literature, the types of reading materials that Stephen Miller came up in you know what he had created through breitbart was really an engine of hatred he was able to effectively use that to turn out trump's base i think and has continued to be able to um, use that base to enact policies that would have been unheard of before trump took office i was honestly pretty disgusted with how little interest the media paid before the story came along to Miller's connections to white nationalists.
3: Mike Hayden also broke the story about Miller's emails. Uh, This guy, by all accounts, and all you have to do is
0: dig around and ask, was running the conservative union at Duke with Richard Spencer. You know, Miller is described in sort of glamorous terms as sort of this bad boy of the White House or whatever. It's truly disgusting that somebody would allow, you know, somebody who has these connections to have that kind of uh, reception as extremely insulting to all Americans, but especially um, the type of people who suffer under his policies.
3: After Miller's white supremacist views were revealed in these emails, nothing happened. He's still influencing policy.
0: Not only have they not done anything, they, they would not do anything because Miller is, is, is so crucial and so important to Trump's mission, which uh, to me has always been to try to hold the line on demographics in the United States and try to protect um, white power in America.
2: I mean, yeah, they're not even dog whistles anymore. I mean, Donald Trump point blank said he was a nationalist. He once also tweeted and said that barbed wire can be beautiful if it's used for the right things. He also asked about the white genocide in South Africa. These are all white nationalist talking points that Donald Trump is falling for or believing. These far-right extremist views held by
3: people in government, are shared by everyday white supremacists hiding in plain sight. Postal workers, doctors, teachers, or even a person you care about the most. You had a relationship with a leader of the alt-right.
2: Yes. By the standard of the movement, he was charismatic. He gave the impression of being productive and driven and ambitious. And he would tell me that he was good at networking, that he was on his way up. He really tried to sell himself to not just me, but to everybody.
3: Samantha didn't want to identify this person
2: on the record. Despite not really being interested, a lot of people told me to give him a chance, and so I did. Did
3: this leader ever threaten you personally?
2: Yes, many times. So, so what much- What kind of threats? I mean, that I would be killed, that I would be doxxed, that I would be raped, that, I, that my life was over at the second he decided to say or do something.
3: Doxing is when someone maliciously publishes private information about another person on the internet with the intent to
2: expose them to harm. There's this idea that in the white nationalist circles, you're building a quote unquote, high trust society. But what they don't also tell you is that if you ever disagree with anything or you leave, that information is now used against you. like almost standard cult procedure. Your whole entire life is burned to the ground.
4: Was Samantha ever doxxed?
3: No. When Samantha made a decision to leave Identity Europa, she took steps to protect herself from retaliation. She also began the work of deconstructing her racist beliefs.
2: I've realized that there are people that have made lesser mistakes and are condemned for the rest of their lives. And that's something I'm really, really, I hate to admit it, this is probably maybe one of the only times that I'm grateful for my white privilege. Why should we listen to you? Why should we care? If we want to talk about what freedom of speech really is, you need to talk about the reality of what people say and what these thoughts lead to. Had I known that, had I had someone telling me these truths when I was getting into this, there's a very high chance I would have never joined. You read black media, right? Yeah. (laughs) Why? I think it's important to read about experiences that I wouldn't necessarily understand or know about. If I don't understand the Black experience from a Black lens, then what am I doing? This is your way of getting out of an echo chamber. I think it's important to read from other perspectives, because what is the point of me just talking to other white people? Like, That's not what this world is supposed to be.
3: But you're reading articles that are pointing out where white people are getting the narrative wrong. I was a little sensitive
2: to it because I was like, oh my God, that's what I thought. Like, how is a Black person calling it a white person, not racist? Like you have those moments where even just to play devil's advocate, you want to ask those questions. I think there are questions that white people want to ask that they're afraid to. And reading these things and by again, reading statistics, reading articles, understanding other perspectives, really just putting myself out there and, Being willing to take that and to say, you know what, like, sure, I have white fragility and I need to understand what that even means. How do you
3: feel being interviewed by a black woman?
2: It feels the same as being interviewed by anyone else about this stuff. It's harder to talk about in the beginning and easier to talk about towards the end. But I mean, it has nothing to do with you being black. It has to do with me being an idiot for a time in my life. For a long time, I denied it, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm brainwashed, and it took a long time for me to really realize that whether I meant it or not, I said racist things. I approved of racist ideology and action, and I was absolutely racist. I have not really looked back on any messages that I sent. I don't really, I don't think I used any racial slurs, but you don't have to, to be racist. You can sugarcoat anything, but at the end of the day, it's still trash. Are you racist now? I am doing my best to dismantle anything in my head.
3: Before dismantling anything in her head, Samantha checked her own racial purity.
2: It's very popular to take like a DNA test, like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, um, anything like that. And if you are not white enough or have a high enough percentage of European ancestry or whatever, you'll typically get kicked out of the movement. So someone's checking that? Yes and no. It's almost like a bragging rights thing in there. Um, There are channels in some, like, chat servers online where you can just post your results. Um, Specifically, 23andMe has, like, how many Neanderthal variants people have, and that was something to brag about. Being Neanderthal, once upon a time, would not have been a bragging right. The narrative has changed. Oh, it sure has. White. Being white is, like, bad or a negative.
3: This recording of Samantha was made in the days following the Charlottesville rally.
2: As long as I've been alive, it's always kind of felt like a small browbeating, or I kind of always have to apologize for being who I am. If I want to talk to anyone about a problem that I'm having or a conflict that I'm trying to resolve, and there's always this, like, yeah, but you're white. That's
5: classic white supremacy. Photojournalist Glenna
3: Gordon made that recording. Mm -hmm. She says white people who believe their identity is under
5: assault isn't surprising. That's like textbook white supremacy. White supremacy is about white victimhood. It's about the idea that people of color are like how to get white people and that white people are being dominated and trampled. Like that's textbook. Was she gonna, you know, shoot up a synagogue? No, absolutely not. Um were people that she was associated with and groups she was in pushing for violence in Charlottesville? Yes, absolutely. Were they trying to change what the mainstream saw as acceptable forms of quote-unquote white advocacy? Yeah. I think that is fundamentally dangerous, but it's really different than physical danger. And I think that it's important to separate those two A lot of people contributed to what happened at Charlottesville, including um, the Virginia police, including uh, the city mayor, including the journalists who came and covered it.
3: And so did Sam.
5: Yeah, so did Sam. She was so lonely and isolated and
3: scared. She actually had management and leadership roles in a way that she'd
5: never had in her life. Yeah, but then to walk away from all of that, When you walk away from that, you're lonely and scared. And to walk away from maybe the most exciting thing that had happened to a waitress. A smart waitress, but a waitress.
6: When you live this way for so long, it's a permanent spot inside of you somewhere. It doesn't go away.
3: Life After Hate helps people leave the violent far right. Samantha turned to them for support.
6: If I asked you in the next 30 days to unlearn the alphabet, could you do it?
3: Sammy Rangel is the executive director.
6: This is why it's important to have a conversation about the difference between stopping a behavior and changing. But change and recovery is when you start to really focus on what am I gonna exchange it for?
3: Can anyone be motivated to leave a life of extremism?
6: We're not here to evaluate your worthiness of, of humanity. Um, we respect that each person has humanity in them. And when we approach a space from that space, I do believe that you are likely to reach someone many more times than you are if you if you don't use that strategy. Yes, there is a need for prison at times. Yes, there is a need for separation. Yes, there is a need for commitment or treatment, uh, maybe even suspension or expulsion. Th- those are those we're not arguing against those those constraints in the face of violent extremism. What we're arguing against is we often either lose our heads in the process of trying to hold someone accountable, and the vast majority of these people are not going to go away forever. They're going to be coming back into your society and often into the very same environment from which they left. And so we have to be prepared how to supervise that, but also how to reconcile with that.
3: Samantha was a part of Identity Europa for 10 months. It takes much more time to
2: change. I have to take a moment and kind of be gentle to myself. I can be really, really hard on myself for this, as I should be. I think when you first leave this and you actually understand the gravity of what you were saying and what you were approving of, uh, it's, it is um, devastating, to say the least. How do you wipe those beliefs out of your mind. I don't think it's a matter of wiping your mind. All of this work is very internal. I can't just cut my hair and say, I'm a different person now. Like That, that does not mean anything.
6: No one is irredeemable. No one is broken beyond repair.
3: Wrangles um, and- says unlearning racism is difficult, but it's achievable.
6: The main recommendations are limit your exposure to negative online behavior. Limit your exposure to um, negative uh, social media and media outlets. Like it's, it's about not only just distancing yourself from, you know, these antisocial environments, but from the, the negative mindset as well.
2: I was brainwashed in all of this stuff. And then I had to really accept the fact that I like feeling important. I like feeling like I have power and that is what the alt-right gave me.
3: And were those feelings generated because of your proximity to the people in power
2: or no? It was what the, caused that? They do this thing where they'll single out people and say, yeah, everyone's, you know, it's a populist movement, but you're special. And it was having women look up to me and ask me for advice. It was men seeking my approval. It was leaders or not. I, it was just having this community of people that made me feel like I was a part of it. And it took an outside source of, a, of, like, real terrifying abuse for me to understand that I'm just reliving my own bullshit every day. And I had to look at myself in the mirror and really see who I was to, like, get that. I had to accept the really ugly parts of myself in order to either heal them or just sit down with them and not let them take over.
3: Rangel says anyone trying to get out will need professional counseling.
6: Which can be a challenge because there aren't a lot of professionals that are trained or who specialize in working with someone from a violent um, a violent extremist group. Um, and, you know, it's violence and violent extremism are not the same things. We're asking people to change their entire lifestyles in many ways, right, um, and to set up a recovery plan, a change plan. Um, That addresses what to do when they feel triggered, how to challenge their old perspectives and ideologies, which means now you have to adopt a new set of ideologies. right? And a lot of times those new sets are in direct conflict with your old one and so can present a challenge. No one should do this process alone.
2: He's steaming milk in an insulated cup, so even when the milk gets hot, he won't be able to feel I it. I need to
6: feel when the milk gets hot, but I can tell, like by the texture of the milk. And I've already um, aerated. Do you need the wet paint thing? Yeah, oh, okay.
2: yeah. Come on. It please.
3: sounds good. Your sister is at a new level of honesty.
6: I hope people, you know, they're gonna take what they will from this, but people do stupid things all the time. We're tragically human, but there's a way out from any bad place in life, not necessarily from hate groups or, you know, bad relationships. It's anything. And I think the easiest way to get through that is to take an honest look at yourself in the mirror and... Just stop bullshitting yourself. And I think that's something that Sam has done. So I'm very proud of you.
4: Sam,
3: part of your therapy um, of getting out, you're getting counseling. You're doing meditation. You're also going to Alcoholics Anonymous.
2: You know, AA, therapy, meditation, it's all part of this... Honestly, it's not religious. It's a spiritual thing. My spirit was really damaged, and I had to really look at myself and take, like, this fearless moral inventory of, like, who I am. Who do I think has hurt me, and what did I contribute to that? I want to eventually, you know, like a five-year plan would be either I'm living in my own space or I own a space, like an establishment for people to come to. And
3: Now Samantha is making it her personal mission to support other women trying to escape.
2: I want to have literature. I want to have people and talks and a community where you can go and sit down and, and really challenge yourself. A shelter of sorts. Yeah. I think if it's not sympathy or not exact understanding, I think a willingness to hear people out is something that women in particular leaving the movement are no longer used to. I was not a good advocate for other women or for anyone really when I was in there and I never want to wake up one morning and realize that I was a bad advocate again. So I am about to
3: complete... um, When I called Samantha to check on her progress, she told me she's training with Life After Hate. She's learning about outreach and managing forums to help other people get out of extremist groups.
2: And it just kind of gives you a broader view outside of your personal experience into what actually goes on in these movements. You just kind of learn, like, how to talk to people on this, people who are on the edge, on the fringe, um, kind of at that precipice of trying to figure out where they want to go.
3: If someone listening to you right now is trying
2: to get out of extremism,
3: what would you say to
2: them? It's going to be hard, and it's going to be scary. We're here. You might think that you don't have a chance you're never going to go back to being a normal person. That was a huge fear of mine. But as it turns out, outside of the alt-right, the world is a much more gentler and much more patient and forgiving and gracious and beautiful.
5: We have to give people a way out.
3: What else is there? Glenna Gordon believes that people like Samantha who want to change should be given everything they need to make that happen.
5: There's there's nothing else. That's what I'm saying about these people are not going anywhere. They're not going to if we punish them when they leave, we're not encouraging anybody to leave. What she did was hard. Somebody else with like a little less fortitude could have stayed. She could be like a big player in that world right now. And she walked away from it. I reached my point in
2: there when my grandmother passed and realized that she had nothing to be proud of. My family, no one I knew, had any reason to mention me as someone who inspired them and I realized that I would rather die than continue being a part of something so awful.
4: What's changed since Samantha got out of Identity Europa?
3: Well, after the violent disaster in Charlottesville, Identity Europa rebranded themselves as the American Identity Movement, AIM for short. But it's still a white power group spreading misinformation, recruiting younger white Americans, and trying to get them government jobs or political appointments. The
1: cult of Trump is actually very important.
3: Matthew Gebert no longer works at the State Department, but he continues to actively spread white nationalist hate on the internet. And Steve Miller? He is still President Trump's senior policy advisor on immigration.
4: And what about Samantha?
3: She's starting over. New job, new friends, new goals. She's revealing the details of her story
2: now to help counter extremism. Before you call her, every time that I get a text from you, um, I get this pang of anxiety. Anytime that like, you know, the due date or the deadline or whatever approaches, I get nervous because this is actually not what I want to be doing. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the face of anything. But I had realized that there aren't many people that are willing to do this and are willing to like, you know, put their head in the stocks and let the public mock them for making such a big mistake. Um, and for a long time, I was really mad at myself for having joined and... And I kind of realized like, I should also probably be a little proud of myself for getting out.
3: Samantha admits she still has plenty of work to do. We all need to continue examining what it means to live together in American civil society, because what's the price if we don't get this right? Sounds Like Hate are stories about people who engage in extremism and hold on to lies.
4: And how some of them disengage from a life of hate. Not Okay is our next two-part story. It's about a high school in Vermont struggling to counter the expression of hate
5: among its students. I've been physically assaulted by a person out of school and was repeatedly called the N-word and that I was gonna get shot and I didn't put my hands on them at all. I just stood there just taking it.
4: If you or anyone you know has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authority or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org slash report hate. This is Sounds Like Hate, brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Additional
3: funding is provided by the Ring Foundation. I'm Jamila Paxima, And I'm Geraldine Moriba. Our editors: Randy Scott Carroll. Composer is Warner Meadows. Associate producer is Jordan Goss-Pore. Thank you for listening.